0: I have noticed over the last several years that when I feel like the score is going really badly, I get more compliments from people <laughs> after the show. Oh, that was a really great score, and I want, to, I want to cut my hands off. Greetings across whatever you listen to things on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of somebody as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, piano tuner, DVD label, educator, programmer, etc., etc. Thanks for wafting in. Thanks for finding the podcast or subscribing. If you've posted a review somewhere, sent a link to somebody you thought was interested thank you so much it's the best way for the word to get out i can plaster links around the internet best i can but you know your friends i don't so thanks so much this is episode 37 and i am joined as i am on every episode as of 2020 by Kerr lockhart hi ben hi Kerr. thanks for being here thanks for Being part of the podcast, uh, Kerr is also serving as co-producer and co-host and organizer of many things that I just can't wrap my brains around, which is why you're hearing (laughs) episode 37 uh, this year and not next year. So thanks so much, Kerr. I'm glad to do it. So we have a comedy episode, uh, folks. Is, this is, oh, what is that
1: right? On. This is what everybody loves. This is uh, the uh, gateway drug for silent film. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about two Buster Keaton films, The Cameraman mm-hmm. uh, and The General, also some Laurel and Hardy shorts, and we're going to be talking about being a DVD distributor. Yes.
2: But
0: first of all, we've got kind of the June blues this year. yes. Mid to late June for the last several years has always meant Mostly Lost to me and a whole lot of other people. A little bit more people every single year. Mostly Lost is an annual film identification workshop held by and at the Library of Congress. Is the brainchild of Rob Stone and it's run every year by Rob Stone and Rachel Delgadio. It's an event where... All sorts of people gather at the Library of Congress, Packard Campus. We sit in the movie theater when the lights are left on. We take out our laptops and devices. There's Wi-Fi all over the theater, and we run film that's been preserved by archives, but nobody knows what it is. And while it's running, we try to figure it out by looking things up and yelling things it's the one time we encourage people to use their phone and talk during the movie <laughs> and and it's a, it, it actually it's a lot of fun and it's not something that's just for People with five PhDs in film theory. It's really a wide range of people and a wide range of expertise. And there are all sorts of things that you can spot in a film that have nothing to do with film history that can help lead to a clue. Like somebody will recognize a windmill. Oh, that's in near where I live in New Jersey. Okay, now we know this is an East Coast production. its uh, We're guessing by the costuming what year it is. We know who who, who was in production in New Jersey in whatever this year was, and the car goes by, and somebody who's a car nut can recognize what kind of car it is, what year it is, and then uh, if it drives close enough to the camera, you can see the license plate. Okay, it says CA-17. Okay, 1917, California. So we know where this thing was made, and there are experts on silent comedy like Steve Massa and Brent Walker and lots of other people who... You know, there's a lot of little guys with little trim mustaches in the nineteen twenties who made comedies, but which one are are we looking at? Is that Neely Edwards? Is it Bobby Dunn? And people are constantly looking things up. So it sounds very intellectual in some ways, but it's kind of like a nerd sport. You just never know if there's something that you might have had an encounter with that has nothing to do with film history. That'll help identify a film. And because often it's the heads and tails of a film that'll go first, these things are cataloged as American Western number 18. Man burst into saloon and something, 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 but we don't know who the people are. One of my favorite stories is that Jeff Rapsis, who's a film accompanist from New Hampshire, came a couple years ago, and one of the things we were running was these unidentified travelogues. Whatever it was, we weren't sure which episode it was and what it was one of them hits the screen, and it's a couple of mountains, and there's a train trestle, and at one point, the train goes through, and nobodys it's just silence. Nobody knows what we're looking at. It's mountains and a train, and there's a microphone, a handheld microphone on either side of the auditorium. So Jeff beckons and they hand the mic over to him and he said, oh, this is in Switzerland. My wife and I were on that train Ah! last year on vacation. And so we now have a town, we looked it up and then within 20 seconds we knew which Burton Holmes travelogue this was when it was released etc. And that had nothing to do with having memorized Andre Bazin's film theories. It's it's just (laughs) recognizing flora and fauna, stuff like that. At at the screenings, it's, it's a mix of silent and sound, although it's heavily silent. And so there are three of us, me, Andrew Simpson, and Philip Carley. And we're at the piano playing, but we have to... Adjust the way we play so that people can be heard when they call things out. And we're listening, which is part of what you do as a film accompanist. You're always kind of aware of the audience and the vibe in the room. But we're also listening. If we hear somebody who's talking who isn't very loud, we'll come down or get really, really quiet. And then if there's a lull, we'll come back up again. And sometimes just to shake things up, I'll play something incongruous and it'll get a laugh or break people up or break the monotony. And also, sometimes one of us will recognize something. So Philip is an expert on a lot of things. A lot of things from the teens, and he'll recognize automobiles or telephones and call, call it. And sometimes he'll turn to me and say, "Oh, that's a that's a blah blah blah." And, you know, we'll play and we'll just turn around to the audience and say, I think that typeface in that comedy short looks like it's from a Thanhouser. And so we're also part of the process. But it's it's important to have live music. And this is something that Rob wanted from the beginning, that we have live accompaniment because it's really hard to sit in a room all day running silent film in dead silence. Hopefully everything will be back to whatever normal is. Next year and we'll have mostly lost nine, which has been postponed until next year.
1: So last year there was a lot of excitement because a new restoration of Buster Keaton's first MGM feature and for many people his last really great feature, *The Cameraman*, uh, debuted. And this is a film that actually withstood a lot of damage. Mostly, the legend goes because MGM showed it to every comedian they signed up, and now it's going to be turning up on home video or has turned up now as uh, yeah. as you're listening to this. But we're not going to talk about that release because. Ben, you had a different attack on the sound of that film.
0: Well, for the longest time, the film was available on DVD from Turner. And the edition that was on that DVD had a score that got done as part of the Young Composers competition that they used to have. It was a great idea where they would find young composers who would win the contest and then get to compose a musical score for a silent film that had been made by Warner Brothers or MGM and then release it, and the score would be performed by an orchestra. And the scores that were done for these, some of them are good, and some of them kind of missed the mark. I was always mystified that the professionals who had been brought in to work with the young composers were experienced film composers, but none of them were film accompanists. And I never quite understood why they didn't bring in any of us film accompanists who have spent years in the room with the audience creating scores for these films. So I created something called Altscore.com. It was an idea people weren't quite ready for. I would see people complaining about scores that were on home video releases of silent films. And I thought it would be great to have an alternate score. And I figured out a way I could make it available as an mp3 download for two ninety nine. dollars And I had a, a short list of films that I saw a lot of complaints about their scores. One of them was the score for The Cameraman. My point with the Altscore.com project was just to provide an alternate score. If you didn't like the track that's on the DVD, fine. Here's something that's probably more in line with what you're expecting from a silent film score. And with the cameraman, it's not quite as surreal as some of Buster's other films. And there is that one moment where he and Marceline Day have that kiss in the rain. And that's the one scene that has a lot of pathos to it, more so than many of his other films. So what are we going to hear now? This is a performance I did at Bard College. This is on an upright piano. They have a nice medium-sized screening room and this was done about a year ago and there's a mix in the audience of people from the local community as well as students coming in. So what you're going to hear is we start a minute or so before that kiss moment and what I like to do with that sequence because it's unlike something from any other Keaton film where there's a sweet little moment and she kisses him and goes inside and he's soaking wet and he just stands there and has this very real moment, and I want to support that musically. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just stop for maybe half a second. I find that playing quieter and quieter kind of zooms the audience's attention up into the heart of what's happening on screen. In a moment like that, you could go for a big Max Steiner romance moment, but that can also push the audience away. But it's not shot in a close-up or medi- close-medium shot we just hold and hold and hold and he's shivering and he's got such an expressive face and he's such a great performer he just has this incredibly honest real moment unlike anything in any of his other pictures and I'll just come down to almost nothing so you'll hear that moment happen and then we go into the sequence with him and the wonderful character actor Harry Gribben who's the policeman live in performance at Bard College September 25th, 2019, yours truly accompanying Buster Keaton's The Cameraman. in performance at bard college yours truly accompanying important and pivotal scene in the cameraman starring buster keaton and i was getting ready to play for that film again i was running that scene over in my head and i had noticed that when i would play for the film and that moment happens she kisses him she goes inside he's standing on the stoops and it's raining and he walks down and there's a tracking shot in front of him as he walks through the rain, I started hearing doo 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 in my head and I thought, wait, what? My daughter, she's 23, and I asked Molly, who's seen that film a lot, I said, Molly, in singing in the rain, what happens in the scene after Kathy Seldon and Don Lockwood kiss?
3: Good night, Kathy. See you tomorrow. Good night, Don.
2: Take care of that throat. You're a big singing star now, remember? This California dew is just a little heavier than usual
3: tonight. Really? From where I stand, the sun is shining all
0: over the place. And she said, oh, he does singing in the rain. I said, "Okay, that's why I'm thinking of that. And then I thought, huh. and so i found that number on youtube and i lined it up against the video of the sequence from the cameraman and darn if it isn't a shot for shot remake it's almost identical and actually if you take the musical number out it's the same thing because instead of harry gribbon comes up to buster there's a guy in the same policeman's rain outfit who comes up to Gene Kelly at the very end. It's almost the same apartment building. There's almost the same number of steps. There's a tracking f- shot in front of Gene Kelly. And I so I, I put the two things side by side and I stuck it on YouTube and it's gotten you know tons and tons of views and hits. And I've always given myself a note that even if I hear that song in my head, do not <laughs> play do not. Singing in the Rain, <laughs> even though it's... And, and the weird thing I found in research is that Stanley Donnan says in an interview that Buster was hanging around, but he didn't have much to contribute. Well, I don't know. Because even the underscore from Singing in the Rain fits the cameraman. Whether or not Buster himself
1: suggested it, given that the standard story is when they hired the Marx Brothers, Red Skelton, Abbott and Costello, they were all yeah. required to go to comedy school and see the cameraman. They held that film in very high esteem. They, they considered they that a model. It. They
2: had
0: <clears throat> and they may have looked at it, and Comden and Green were big fans as, uh, of silent film yeah. as well. But what what I thought was so interesting is how well the underscore from Singing in the Rain fits that same moment in parallel from The Cameraman. And you'll see that in the YouTube video. I put up.
1: Of course, the frequent um, partner or companion of... The cameraman is Buster's next MGM film, Spite Marriage.
0: I'm not a fan of the film. It's the birth of what I call stupid Elmer. You know, he's just a dolt that everybody ma- makes fun of it and laughs. And that's really where it starts in, in Spite Marriage. I think the Vitaphone track that's on it kind of undermines it. It really plays up the stupid Elmer part of it. There's all the sound effects of people laughing at him and all that stuff. I played for the film at the Kansas Island Film Festival a few years ago. Maybe an hour before the show, as Jeff Rapsis, who also plays at the Kansas Silent Film Festival, along with Marvin Falwell, uh, Jeff comes up being, oh, yeah, you're going to play for Spite Marriage? I said, yeah, well, whatever. He said, no, it really comes to life with an audience. And I I had never really played for the film. I'd seen it in a theater once many years ago, and I thought, huh, I wasn't expecting Spite Marriage to do that, and darned if it didn't. At the climax of the big Fist fight on the boat, Buster gets an applause break. Do you ever play uh, to cue that? I try to build to it. I don't want to cue the audience clap here. <laughs> but I was really surprised by it. And I did what I could to underscore the comedy moments. It's a challenge because there are, for the most part, no payoffs. There are setups. And then we move on to the next thing. But there aren't a lot of punchlines the way you're used to having. But Jeff was absolutely right. The film really comes to life with an audience. And I, I recorded my score for it. And it's one of these things we have to look at it and, and not think of it as the buster you know from the other films. His character is different. So musically, you have to make that work. And the little moments, like when he's putting Dorothy Sebastian to bed, oh. uh, which, are, which is kind of a breakout vaudeville routine, which I played as if it was a vaudeville mm-hmm. act. You know, I I, I forget exactly what I did, but I, I handled it that way. There's a little bit he does on the boat where he's got a tray and he drops a bottle that's tied to a rope and he makes it pop back up and land on the tray. It's like this little clown gag that he pulls out of his back pocket in the midst of all this other stuff. So the little comedy moments that are there, I try to make them work as if it was the old buster. But, you know, you have to find a way musically to support it.
3: My name is Mark Fuller. I'm based in Bristol in the UK. We have a little silent film organisation which produces and puts on events in and around the South West called South West Silence. That's South West to England. Because all of our events obviously have ground to a halt with the lockdown, we've been tacking onto the coattails of uh, Ben and Steve and um, the watch party since it began from, from uh, the first broadcast. But they've been great fun. Great selection of films. Thank you to all the archives who've uh, allowed that to happen. A good international selection as well. What was interesting was that one of the prints you showed, I think the weekend before last, um, was an American film. But it was a British print uh, from the intertitles. It kept going on about a taxi fare being two quid or something like that, if I remember correctly. So yeah, these these things have crossed the world and back again and it's great to see them and thanks Ben and Steve for putting them on. So as we continue our march through the
1: comedy all-stars, we're talking about another Keaton, and this Keaton is kind of a five hundred pound gorilla of silent comedy features. It's a lot of people's first feature, certainly was mine,
0: the general. Yeah, I think I probably first saw it on the silent years on public television in the 1970s. And it's on a lot of people's top whatever number lists. And it does get shown quite a bit. And every few years it gets re-re-re-restored and a new version will come out. And I had an opportunity to play for it in October at Shippensburg University, which is in Pennsylvania. I hadn't played for it in quite a while And as years go by and we know more and more about why the South wanted to start that war and secede, it's getting harder to watch something where the South is the good guys. So I discussed this film choice with Margaret Lucia and we wanted to do a comedy. We wanted to do Keaton and it is a film that a lot of people have heard of. And this is a college showing to college students on a college campus. Kids who are in college today have a different relationship and understanding of what the Civil War was really about than maybe 20, 30 years ago, and you really have to address that. And I said, here's a link to watch it. I want you to watch the whole film. We discussed it, and there's there's nothing overtly racist in it. There's nothing with blackface, and there's stereotype gags, but he is on the side of the South in the film as was done quite often in the 1920s. Harold Lloyd's flashback in Grandma's Boy, he's on the side of the South. Raymond Griffith in Hands Up, he's on the side of the South. America's relationship to the Civil War in the 20s was very different from where we're at now. There's two things that that I have to deal with musically, and one is the music of the Civil War. It's not that familiar to a lot of people. I have often gotten away with playing music that sounds like Civil War-era music, and that's all you really need, just a hint at it. But I know I did a show once where somebody came up to me afterwards, and this is a couple of years after the Ken Burns documentary was all over the place, and this person asked me why I hadn't played any of the Civil War music. And I realized that, well, and it, now it's back in people's consciousness because of the Ken Burns thing. The one place I have used it, the moment when the two different armies march by Buster on the train and he's not aware of it. So there's a case where
1: you're uh, using music to specifically cue the audience. Identify, Yeah. yeah. Provide information.
0: Because I know that I myself wasn't really paying attention as a young person as to which army it was, so I'll do that. I try to play music that sounds like Civil War music where there are dramatic sequences Fort Sumter has been fired upon, then war is certainly here. And then all that stuff in the, in the beginning. And then the other challenge is that it is with the exception of the sequence in the night, in the rain, where it pauses for a bit, it's a long chase. It's a lot of chase to maintain. It is all moving in a forward motion. And there is variety and pace to it. But I don't like to get too caught up playing chase music, chase music, comedy music, comedy music. Because uh, I don't want to wear myself and I don't want to wear out the audience either. As you'll hear in, in our performance clip, I try to shift gears from time to time just so, okay, we're onto a new gag sequence and I'll, I'll play something in three or go into a different tempo or different key. There's a gag in the film that's a running gag that I spent different shows of this film working on making it work better. Buster is in the cab of the engine. Something has happened. He looks out of the cab. Whatever he thought was there is not there and vice versa. And we cut to a medium shot of him in the cab, blinking. So if it was the 30s, uh, Carl Stalling would have played xylophone notes. Right. (laughs) And 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 I would have tried and I tried that and it didn't uh-huh. work. But my rationale is, okay, Buster put this gag in here. They tested the film, so if this didn't get a laugh in 1926, 1927, it would have been cut or shot a different way. And I'm not hearing the audience laugh here. I'm getting maybe light chuckles, but not the big laugh that's supposed to be there. And you know that this clearly was supposed to be in there because it's the only shot that they faked. They plowed a locomotive across a burning bridge into a river, but the shot with the eye blinks is against a a rolling diorama. And I figured, okay, if they went to the trouble to get this take, to get this laugh, it's got to work. So I've tried the Carl Stalling minor seconds. I tried a couple of different things, and and I eventually landed on something that works the best in terms of the audience laugh. I feel like I'm working for Buster Keaton when the lights go off. And so he's made this film, and I want it to work for a contemporary audience the way he intended it to. And so if there's something that I can do to help this gag that he and his crew worked so hard on, I'll do it. Uh, You're not going to hear the eye blink music. You're going to have to come to see me play for this whenever we all go back to the movies. So what you're going to hear is my live performance at Shippensburg University on a very nice grand piano of Buster Keaton's The General... I believe it starts right around the moment when Glenn Cavender removes the, the coupler of the the car and the engine is stolen, and it goes through the first minute or two of Buster in pursuit of his So general. this is
1: the northern spies stealing the general. Yeah. Yes,
0: the northern spies. I'm sorry, and you'll see me trying not to wear out my welcome playing chase music. Live in performance at Shippensburg University in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. Yours truly accompanying Buster Keaton in The General. Shippensburg University in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. Yours truly accompanying Buster Keaton's The General. Somewhere in the middle of Reel 2, I think. I don't play for this film all that often. As famous a film as it is, I find that every time I do play for it, I find myself afterwards questioning how much I like the film. And maybe it's because it is one long chase. There's just something I haven't been able to put my finger on yet. And I'm always trying to find a new way to play for it that works for me better. Because there's so much of it is in constant motion. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon for 50 minutes, then we break, and then it starts up all over again, then there's the big battle. This is the case with some other comedy features, notably some of the Harold Lloyd films, where dramatically nothing happens for a couple of reels. The audience is having a great time, but I'm just just playing gag music. As fun as it is to to play for, I think getting to share it with an audience as an accompanist by booking it is probably what's more fun for me.
1: The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. Mostly Lost, it's the name of a film workshop. A state of mind and now it's two dvd releases from undercrank productions two volumes of found and mostly lost comprising 21 short films featuring such comedians as snub pollard monty banks hank mann and even a talkie featuring william frawley of i love lucy fame performing his original vaudeville act plus there are westerns dramas and even animated films like bobby bumps ben how did you decide to convert this rather specialized workshop into a
0: home video product for everyone to enjoy. When you attend Mostly Lost, what Rob and Rachel do every year is produce a disc that contains highlights from the previous years Mostly Lost. It would have three or four shorts on it and Andrew, Philip, and I would each score one of these shorts. And I thought, oh, well these are already made You know what I could do is combine three years' worth of these into our releases and then have the royalties go towards helping fund the Mostly Lost Workshop. And it's also a way to get the word out about the Workshop and what we actually do If you can't make it or you wonder what it is, and it's a way to see some undiscovered gems that we have identified as part of the workshop. But it's a wide range of stuff. And like you said, the William Frawley, it's a DeForest photo film, I think, from 1921. It was cataloged as ventriloquist, and that's it. We knew it's Frawley. We're pretty sure that the woman who appears with him as the ventriloquist dummy is his wife at the time. He always, in I Love Lucy, talks about having been in vaudeville and
1: then, there he is there's the evidence as Ben mentioned these films come complete with new musical scores by Ben Philip Carley and Andrew Simpson DVD Talk says they are quote great to add to any collection highly recommended and Zeke Film says if you enjoy pre-1929 cinema this collection is for you available from UndercrankProductions.com Amazon Deep Discount Movies Unlimited com, and nearly every dealer in classic film that's found at Mostly Lost Volumes 1 and 2. So, Ben, you're looking back over the years, boy, film accompanist, you're trying to stitch together enough appearances to turn this into a career, and then somehow you've slid sideways into becoming a DVD distributor. How, yeah. why
0: has that happened? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea that this quote-unquote career is, is, you know, I shouldn't be making a living doing this, but I am. About 20 years ago, I saw that anything I did involving silent film just kind of worked itself out. I, I found that with the DVD, it started out with accidentally preserved volume one, which I thought, yeah, there's going to be more volumes of this. And it just worked. There is something in it. That was a a Kickstarter, was it not? It was done as a Kickstarter at the way – this is uh, 2012. So this is right when Kickstarter is really um, starting to tip and people are going to crowdfunding for artistic projects and other things. And I coupled that with Manufacture on Demand, which I found that Amazon was doing. The formula that I came up with is fund the project through crowdfunding, eliminate the need for inventory by doing it as manufacture on demand. Manufacture on demand is done by Amazon. So you're automatically on Amazon. And then between that and the other quality factors of good transfers, good scores, and most importantly, good box art, because box art is your that's your first line of defense online. It just kind of worked. And here was a DVD of films that nobody had heard of with people nobody had ever heard of. And I did get a bit of a boost because some months before Dave Kerr stopped writing for the Times and started being a film curator at MoMA, he reviewed Accidentally Preserved Volume 1. And the review was at the tail end of his review of the new Blu-ray of Safety Last. So I sold a lot of copies of Accidentally Preserved, and which allowed me to release Volume 2. And then there just became this cycle of thinking of other things to release. I'd been playing at Library of Congress and starting to get to know what they had in their collection and that's how Musty Surfer came about. The cycle I was talking about is I would crowdfund something, I'd produce it, score it, do the publicity, get it out, release it, and then be at a point where I think, oh, I'm never doing this again and then a few months later I'd get over it and I'd hear about another bunch of films or some feature and I'd think uh, so I should really put that out because there's all this stuff that the big boys, you know, Kino and uh, Flickr Alley or Criterion might not necessarily be interested in because it's a limited interest. But I had found this wormhole as a way to get these films that are sitting in archives on a shelf or in collectors shelves to the fans who wanted to see. The them. other thing I want to say about your side hustle is is that the key to a successful Kickstarter
1: is preparing the ground. You can't just uh, shoot your video and put it up and hope somebody comes along. You need to have an established base of people who know you and are going to come. It takes about 12 months to prep the 60 days of the Kickstarter. And there you are zigzagging the country, meeting people and entertaining audiences. And you sort of have this population that is receptive to uh, what you're bringing to the table.
0: Yeah, it it was a mix of that and social media. I mean, I really spent time learning how that worked. And around the same time I was researching crowdfunding and manufacturing on demand, I started watching videos that were geared at people in the music industry. And how do you make a living doing this anymore? And it was all about how you can use social media as a way to connect with fans. Not about just splattering stuff on social media, but really connecting with with people who like what you do or, in my case, they like the films that I'm playing for. And so I spent a number of years working on Instagram and Twitter and, and on Facebook and connecting with people, connecting with people who connected with other people. I got to this point where... About four Kickstarters ago, I would launch something and within eight hours, the project would be funded. With the Marion Davies one night it was in flower, I launched the Kickstarter, sent all the links out everywhere, went in, taught my class at was then, while I was driving home, hit the funding goal. <laughs> um, it's because I'd built up this goodwill uh, among other people. And, and uh, some of that is also staying in touch with the people who would had pledged the project. So you're absolutely right. There's a certain amount of groundwork that has to happen. And sometimes people will contact me about Kickstarter advice. I'll say, when do you launch? And they'll say, tomorrow. And um, you wish that there was a DeLorean outside (laughs) they could get into. Because, like you said, it isn't just what you're doing. It's it's having developed a connection with other people who know what you're up to. And. There are people all over the planet, and I think this is largely because of Twitter and things being retweeted and retweeted, who I don't know, couldn't possibly have connected with in Sweden. and There's somebody in, in Qatar who pledges to the last two or three Kickstarters I've done. They've found the work and they, they're happy with what I'm doing. So it's one of these things where you do something, then you do it again, and then you do it again, and you do it again. And then you look back and, oh, I do this now. <laughs>
1: all right so continuing the great parade of comedy we're into my jam here laurel and hardy and i don't think i've had a lot of opportunities to see laurel and hardy with live music that must be really a lot of fun
0: well they're all great but there's some that are favorites of mine we're going to hear a, a section of a recording of our live performance i did at the afi silver theater in silver spring maryland This is a program that was assembled by Lobster Films in Paris. That's Serge Bromberg. The lead-off short on the program is a new restoration of a short called Duck Soup, not to be confused with the Marx Brothers picture. This is the first time Stan and Ollie were teamed in a film, and it's based on a sketch that Stan's father had written and done. It was later remade as another fine mess. The film has often been around in slightly truncated versions with foreign titles, and this is a better-looking version and slightly more complete. And the rest of the program were the regular Laurel and Hardy team shorts, including Wrong Again, which is really one of my favorites, and it's one I show my students, and another film called Liberty, and that's what we're going to hear a section from. It's the one where the two of them are doing a high-end dizzy thing up, up on girders, People really like this short more than I expect them to. And it does get shown quite a bit. It's not a typical Laurel and Hardy film. It's not about their characters. The high and dizzy gags are great. And once they get up on the building and the film takes off, this is why I like Wrong Again so much. It's so much about the two of them and their friendship and the weird way they understand the world. Whereas... Liberty could be two other comedians stuck up on the girders. But it is a funny film, and it does get shown a lot. And you'll hear in the in the recording, you'll hear the audience laughing. This is a situation where the organ that is installed at the theater is an Allen organ, an electric organ made in the 1980s, which has what I call that ballpark sound. We're not quite technologically where sampling has happened quite yet when this was made. So the sounds do try their darndest to sound like theater organ sounds, but it's definitely an electric instrument. But it's still an organ and not a piano. And they have a piano. They have a very nice Yamaha upright. And often when I get booked to play there, I'll be asked which instrument I'd like to use it. And unless it's, you know, biograph shorts, I'll, I'll go for the organ. It's a big space and it really needs to be filled by that lush sound of the theater organ. So here is, just so you get to hear that sound, uh, here's a few minutes of my score for Liberty. I think it's about halfway in, they're up on the girders, and you'll hear me again, rather than just playing fright music all the way through, try to find different modes to go back and forth from uh, to keep it interesting. Here, live in performance at the AFI Silver Theater, Uh, Yours truly accompanying Laurel and Hardy in Liberty. at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, just off the Red Line. If you're from the D.C. area, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Accompanying Liberty with Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy on an Allen 3600 electric organ. One of the things I was able to do that weekend, uh, that was a Sunday show, and the day before, I played for MoMA's Restoration of Forbidden Paradise, a Lubitsch film, and uh, the new restoration by Lobster Films of our hospitality with Buster Keaton, and what I did, since they were back-to-back shows and it was a different day, I had always wanted to do this, I, from the time I began playing at the AFI Silver, noticed that there was a tab on the organ that said MIDI, that's M-I-D-I, and which is a universal computer language for musical instruments, I think it literally means Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And it's one of those rare things with computers is that MIDI was invented, and it's always been MIDI. You know, I don't think much has changed with it. So even though this was an instrument made in the 1980s, MIDI is MIDI. And I brought my MacBook Pro, which has the Paramount Organ Works Rolitzer th- samples on it, which is hosted by another program called How It Work. And this is what I use for theater organ scoring for DVDs and for shows I do at the Cinema Arts Center, and at MoMA occasionally, and other places where I can take that sound. And we plugged the MacBook into the MIDI out port on the organ, and darn if it didn't work, which it did. So we then routed my MacBook into a DI box, direct input box that went into the house sound system. And so for those two shows, I got to play the sound of the Wurlitzer in that theater. And it was great to know that it could work kudos to the tech staff and the projection staff and to Todd Hitchcock and Ben Delgado just saying yeah let's give that a shot uh, so it was it was fun t- to get to bring that sound to the AFI Silver Theatre for those two shows. I'm hoping we can visit that in a future podcast we can find out where War- the cut. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: So now it's time for our frequently asked questions. If you have a frequently asked question, please go to silentfilmmusic.com. Go to the Contact Us page and send us your question. We're going to start building that bank of questions and answers, and we'd like you to be part of it. Today, people are wondering, Ben, when you have a commissioned score recording for a home issue or even when you're working for yourself or under crank what instrument to use, and how do you go about recording it? Are you working at home? Are you at a studio? Just how is that all happen?
0: Sometimes I'll get a specific request to do something on organ or piano. A lot of times it's left up to me, and then for me it's a matter of the era of the film. If I have a choice, and it's a film from the late teens or throughout the 1920s, I will typically lean toward theater organ because that's what people heard in cinemas. As much as anecdote I hear more often than anything else is my great aunt played the piano in silent movie theaters, I do know that that's really the sound, meaning theater organ, that that people heard in cinemas. What's changed in the last I don't know, five to eight years. Is that the sound quality of televisions has gotten a lot better? And for the longest time, the reason to not go with theater organ was between the fact that it was expensive and complicated to record properly. A theater organ just didn't sound good on a little boxy speaker on a television set. But now that people have sound bars and home theaters setups and that sort of thing, that's changed a lot. And I also know that I spent ten years or so saying, Hey, can I do this on theater organ instead of piano? And I went from having to convince people to people asking for theater organ, which has been which has been great. It's taken me a while, but I think that just getting people used to it and knowing that it, it can work it's it's really different in case by case situation. Like I've done several volumes of scores of DVDs for Ned and He's always asked for theater organ, but I just recorded about 11 scores for him. And this time, Ned said, you know, hey, just to mix it up a little bit, maybe do some of them on piano. So I did did a a mix of those that way. The theater organ, I don't go into a studio. There's no need to. Because I knew how to record myself, I just did it that way. So it started out doing the Edison films for Kino, connecting my MacBook Pro to my keyboard and playing stuff out. And I think I did all the scores I did for real classic DVD were, were done that way as well. And as I moved up to Theater Organ, because it's all self-contained, there's a way to digitally route the audio from the organ software into a program like Reaper or Audacity. And I've also gotten better samples for piano. Every few years, I'll find something better and better. The sample set I use right now for piano, something was recommended to me by Roger Miller from the Ally Orchestra. It's all done in-house literally and figuratively. Several years ago, I bought a video projector. I was trying to solve the problem that I had of feeling when I was recording the way I felt in processing a film going into my eyes and out of my hands, the way I did at a show. Well, I can't have 80 people over. That doesn't work. But I realized that the size of the image made a difference. And I was looking at something either on a television set or or on a large computer monitor. And... I thought, I wonder if having something eight, nine feet wide in a dark room where I was looking up at it would make a difference. And it absolutely did. It was really amazing. The difference, uh, I mean, I still had a hard time recording. It's, It's not easy. Recording is really, really hard. I don't know how it is for everybody else who does this. I find that I'm just now at a point where I'm aware of the process enough that when I start I can tell myself okay I'm gonna spend three hours just getting the opening titles and then it'll be fine from there Uh, but for a long time there was just a lot of stomping around and cursing and my wife worrying about my well-being because it would just take me so long to just get a good head of steam going while recording is still difficult I was able to go on the journey with the film much more easily And having the image that large as it would be in the theater made a huge difference in terms of my being able to decode the dramatic information and the language, the visual storytelling language of silent film and process it so it would go through my head and my heart and out my hands Maybe that's the reason uh,
1: when you see the recordings of a full-size orchestra for a conventional theatrical film... They're always projecting on a big screen, even if the conductor's listening to a click tracker has whatever aids, yeah. he has the picture really big.
0: Yeah, I mean it definitely it definitely helps. And for me, because I'm more like composition in performance and to be inspired the right way by the emotion, having the large image in the darkened room really made a difference. <laughs>
2: Just
1: so as we're heading out the door it's time for my recommendation and this time it is a podcast and many of you might know this podcast or know of this podcast it's a film history podcast which is extremely researched and highly produced It's called You Must Remember This. It's uh, written and narrated and produced by Karina Longworth, who has managed to parlay this into some producing and script assignments in Hollywood. She's gotten a lot of attention for this. But the one that interests us here at the Silent Film Music Podcast are episodes 121 through 131. This is part of a larger series where she is debunking the hollywood babylon version of hollywood history and we all know just how awful that is and these 12 episodes or 11 episodes 121 through 131 specifically focus on silent film which had probably more than its share of legends 121 is about griffith and the gish sisters there's one about olive thomas about roscoe arbuckle william desmond taylor mabel Normand. Wallace Reed, The Hollywood Code, Peggy Hopkins Joyce, Thomas Ince, Rudolph Valentino, and Clara Bow. And all those people are subjects of stories which are scurrilous in one way or another. And she sets the record straight, and so you can correct a lot of people with telling you nonsense at parties about the silent yeah. film stars and producers with this really fine series. So that's you must remember this episodes one twenty one through one thirty one. It's completely free on every known podcast platform in the discovered universe to this point. Play them,
0: play as time goes
3: by. Well, oh, I can't remember it myself. I'm a little rusted.
0: Well, folks, that's it. That's episode 37 of the silent film music podcast. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm glad you are here with us today for this episode. I want to thank as always, my co producer and co host Kerr Lockhart. Thanks for being here. It's always here. a pleasure. Finally, after I don't know how many years I've been doing this solo, I really appreciate all the work that goes into this. If you haven't thought of it already, do post a review at Apple Podcasts. It helps people find out about the podcast or get it recommended to other people. If you have shared the links to information about the podcast, really appreciate it. Do send me questions about for the FAQ. The FAQs don't have to be F. They can be dumb. They can be dumb questions. There are questions. no dumb questions. Those are oftenly... Like, there are no dumb questions, and sometimes those are the best ones. So do send in questions. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at at Silent Film Music. I'm on Facebook. You can reach me by email. And until the lights come on in the cinemas again, I will see you every Sunday for the Silent Comedy Watch Party on YouTube. Thanks for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. I'll be seeing you.